And this morning as I read this psalm, I want you to, most of you are familiar with the passage in Mark where we in chapter 15 of Jesus' crucifixion. And as I read this this morning, I want you to hear, I want you to hear the cross and the resurrection and some of the results of the resurrection in this psalm. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer and by night, but have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel in in you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me snare at me. They separate their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They have opened wide their mouth at me as, rav- as ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. Amen. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, You reign far above us. You are the Almighty, the All-Glorious, the only one worthy of all of our praises and worship. You reign. God, as we go through this life, there are times that we see and hear of things, and sometimes we even go through things ourselves that cause great distress. God, we want to pray for the families in Texas this morning as they're mourning the loss of these kids, some of these teachers. God, I pray that your rule, your reign, your sovereignty in the midst of that chaos will comfort. We can't imagine what they're going through. God, there are those here that are suffering to some degree, physically, emotionally, relationally, God, I pray that we would look to you. That we would see your reign. We would see your glory. We would be reminded this morning that we can trust in you and we will find hope in you. God, as we take a time and pause this weekend and observe Memorial Day, God, our minds and our thoughts drift to all those who have served and been wounded or killed. God, I pray that you would comfort the families. God, I pray that you would remind these families that you reign and that you are victorious. God, be with us now as we open your word. As we look at this passage. All this is only possible in your son Jesus name. Amen. We're going to spend two weeks on this text. So this week is going to be maybe just a a tad bit difficult. You're going to have to use your your wrist some of turning back and forth. And so you may want to put a marker or a a finger in Psalm 22 and one over in Mark chapter 15. And just know that we're, I'm not going to cover everything that's in Mark 15 this morning, but we will get back there next week. But I wanted to start this morning by just making this proclamation that some of you know, and if you don't know this, you will learn this, is that as people, as God's people, we have to learn how to suffer. We have to learn how to suffer. Sometimes when people uh, talk to me about running and they find out that I've done some running of marathons and, you know, 30 miles or so, one of the things they ask me is, how in the world do you do that? And oftentimes I tell them, don't ask me how I do that. You know, we have other people in the church like Josh and Tracy and Jared, who run 100 miles. And one of the things, if you, if you talk to people who run long distances or who ride bike long distances, or, and it doesn't even have to be a long distance. Sometimes 
sometimes in running a 5K really fast, really what people have learned how to do is they've learned how to suffer. They've learned how to kind of stick it out and to, to, to go past the pain, to go past the point where most of us would want to give up. I was listening to a podcast uh, of, a, of a Navy SEAL who is now an ultra runner. And it was fascinating because as he was talking about running, he was talking about that he would enter some, some of these major events with major distances without much training. And what he said was is this. He said, I knew I was never going to quit because I was either going to finish the race or die. And at first I was like, that's cool. I'm going to have that attitude. And then real quickly it became that stupid A t-shirt. Right? It's not worth it. That suffering is not worth it for a t-shirt or, or sometimes a belt, belt buckle. And so I was just kind of caught off guard by that. And then I got to thinking. Some races are worth it. Some races are worth it. Some races are worth the suffering. Some races are worth giving your life to. I mean, this morning, yesterday, we started getting reports from Texas that there were some officers who got to the scene early and were outside the classroom. And for whatever reason, and we may know going forward, they didn't enter into that classroom where young children were being slayed. And it's easy for me to say because I wasn't there, but I want to say it would have been worth it. This morning, as I mentioned in my prayer, we're celebrating, not celebrating, we're observing Memorial Day where we honor those who have suffered for freedom. And these men and women had the idea that it was worth it. Paul as he often describes the Christian life, describes the Christian life as a race. And in this race, there are hardships, there are troubles, there's pain, there's sacrifice. And one of the things that we as believers, one of the things that we have to think through, and one of the things that we have to be convinced of, is that it's worth it to run the race that is set before us. It's worth it for many reasons. One of the reasons that it's worth it is that we're running the race to display the power of the gospel and to bring the gospel to those who are perishing. It's worth it. The sacrifice is worth it. And also, also God's word has given us that if we endure, if we make it, if we, if we run this race, we know what is set before us. It's worth it. So we must learn how to suffer. And one of the ways, one of the ways that we learn how to suffer is by looking to Jesus. By looking to Jesus. There are many things that we need to learn from this text in Mark chapter 15. He suffered in our place. He died so that we can have a relationship with him. And, and 
as he was going to the cross, he taught us. He taught us how to deny ourselves, how to pick up our cross and how to follow him. Part of the reason that we have this text is that it teaches us some things about suffering. If you were here last week, one of the things that we talked about as we looked in this text last week was that Jesus doesn't look like a Messiah king here. If we've got this idea of what a Messiah looks like or should look like, if we get this idea of what a king would look like, that in our text we see over and over again that Jesus doesn't fit this mold of this strong man who is conquering. I mean, when we look at him, we think he's losing. I mean, if we back up, one of his own betrayed him. All of his disciples, these guys that have spent all this time with him, are scattered. They're gone. His own people, the priests and the crowds, are yelling, crucify him. And here we have this man, this king, this Messiah, whose fate seemingly is in the hands of this Roman governor, Pilate. And he's bound and he's beaten. And Many of the people around him, one of the reasons that they didn't understand what was going on is because they didn't understand the role and the kind of king and the kind of Messiah that he was, that he was doing something much bigger. All they saw was what was right in front of them. And they said, this does not look like a king. And last week we ended by talking about They had no idea what was about to happen. They had no idea what was happening next. And we who know the gospel, who know this account, we know what's getting ready to happen next. We know that because of what Jesus did and because what he endured and that he rose again from the grave, that he conquered sin and death. We know. We know the paradox. I mean, we even use these words, suffering servant. There are books written about humble leadership. Servant leadership. We sing the song, Man of Sorrows. What a name. In our text... In the text in Mark 15, we see once again that this king, this Messiah, isn't recognized. Look at starting in verse 16 with me. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail the king of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him. And kneeling and bowing before him. 
After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Baffled. The sovereign king of the universe, God in the flesh, and this is how he's treated. And it's not over. In verse 29, those who were passing were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. He could have stopped it. He could have silenced them. But instead of him silencing them, he stayed silent. I mean, do you think about it? This king, this Messiah, God in the flesh, couldn't even carry his own cross. In verse 21, we see that he couldn't carry his own cross. This was common. If you were led out to be crucified, you carried one of the beams yourself that weighed about 100 pounds. They would strap it to you and you would carry it out yourself. But he was so weak that he couldn't even carry his own cross. I think sometimes when we read this text, there's something that's missed. One of the things that we have to see, one of the things that Mark is bringing out, that's part of the gospel message that we have to get, we need to understand, is the scorn, the mockery, the betrayal, the suffering. But I think one of the things that we don't see that's in this text, that I believe is in this text, is the hope that Jesus had on the cross. You may be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Maybe you're even thinking, why in the world did we start with reading Psalm 22? And I want to tell you, much of what I have learned this week and much of where this sermon has been developed, it didn't come from my own head. But there were, there were some authors, Carson and Beale, and they have this great little big book, and it was really helpful to me this week. As this was directed to me. But one of the things that I want you to see. Here Jesus in the midst of all of this. In the midst of all of this pain. In the midst of all of this suffering. I want you to see the hope that he had. And we're going to have to do just a little bit of work. Not too hard. Not too hard. But we're going to have to do a little bit of work. The first thing that I want you to see that I think is vitally important. Did you hear that Psalm 22 is quoted three times in this text. In verse 24, 
at least partially quoted three times. They crucified him and they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. If we were to go to Acts 22, and we will turn back over there in a minute, we see that in verse 18. In verse 29 of Mark 15, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, again, this wording is from Psalm 22, verse 7. And then the, the, the place where we'll spend a bulk of our time this morning, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in verse 34 with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Tani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And did you hear that refrain as we began reading Psalm 22 this morning? We hear these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you still aren't convinced, we could read many, many, many places. And some of those I'm going to reserve to the end. But even if you go back to Psalm 22 and look at verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Almost this idea of I thirst, and you lay me in the dust. For dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. One of the things that's easy to see that is Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he is writing this text, that he has Psalm 22 in mind. It is right there. I believe that Mark is pointing us to this psalm as we're looking at the death of Jesus. And it's interesting. Psalm 22 was not one of these psalms that was considered by Jews historically to be a messianic psalm. And one of the reasons is they had no really concept of a suffering servant, Savior. That the concept they had was of a victorious Savior. But yet, as Mark is writing, this part of his gospel is dripping with Psalm 22. And we also have to ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus quote Psalm 22? Here and in the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus on the cross is quoting Psalm 22. Is there a purpose? Is there a reason? I think for a long time, I just thought that Jesus was searching for some really deep way to communicate that he was Lord, but also just this deep pain, this deep sorrow. And he reached back and these were words. I, I mean, there's other truths embedded in this as well. Right? Jesus is going through deep, deep agony. Deep, dark, intense pain. And, we don't understand this, he's experiencing separation from the Father. Luther, I think it was Luther, said it like this. The mystery, the mystery of God forsaking God. We can't even begin to wrap our hands, 
heads around that or understand what's going on at this moment. And this is all absolutely 100% true. Can you imagine the depth of the agony and the pain, not only physically, but emotionally, that at this moment that Jesus felt alone? One of the other things that is true about this quote and about this text and that we focused on for years and rightfully so is that we find comfort in these words. Because as we go through pain, if, as we go through hardships, as we go through difficulties, we often hear these words and then we realize that Jesus, Jesus has walked through. Jesus, our Savior, can sympathize with us. We don't serve a high priest who didn't experience pain, frustration, sorrow, despair. And so we hear these words and we find comfort. And we should. We should draw comfort from these words. But I think there's more. I think there's more going on here. When we look at Jesus on the cross, one of the questions that I ask myself and I want to pose to you without an audible answer. I'll just make it a statement instead of asking a question. Jesus was not experiencing utter and total despair. Hopelessness. It's not as if like Jesus at this moment was buying into what Job's friends told him, hey, curse God and die. You've been forsaken. It's not who Jesus was. It's not what Jesus was doing upon the cross. And I think when we look at this and we notice that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, that we begin to see that Jesus in the midst of this is actually calling us to this psalm and is actually on the cross in the way that He was suffering, the way that He was dying, the way that He was speaking, was proclaiming hope. Was proclaiming hope. Just quickly, let's flip back over to Psalm 22. I want you to notice a couple of things. Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And notice how quickly the psalm turns. Do you notice that? Yet. Yet. You are holy. O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. As Jesus is here and He's crying upon the cross, another thing that He says, not, in, not here, but in Luke, is what? Into your hands I do what? I trust you. I hope in you. 
deep, dark, horrific pain. Not my will, but yours be done. And then if we skip down in the psalm to verse 24. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do this to his son. He's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. In the midst of being crushed. In the midst of suffocating to death. In the midst of bearing the weight and the guilt and the punishment of my sin and your sin. In the midst of this, in the midst of bearing and taking on my shame and my punishment. As he is dying this horrific death. Could it be? Could it be that as he's crying these words and as he is crying words from the cross, that he's not crying words of despair, but he's crying words of hope? Flip back over to Mark 15. As you're familiar with this text, have you ever found some of the stuff that is in this text strange? There are two things that that I think that if, if we're reading this without Psalm 22 in our minds, that we would be asking ourselves, what in the world is going on? Look at verses 34 and 36 through 36. Jesus has cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he cries this on the cross. When some of the bystanders heard it, notice what they did. They began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. And they said, let us see whether Elijah will come and to take him down. What's going on? Maybe they didn't understand. We don't know. Maybe they didn't understand the the language that Jesus was speaking, but there was something in the way that he cried that made them wonder, is he going to be saved? This was not their attitude before. And you may say, Elijah, Elijah was looked at as the, the guy, the prophet who would come in and who would deliver and who would save. And so it's interesting, it's interesting that Elijah looked at this prophet of deliverance and when Jesus cried, when he screamed, that immediately people around him said, whoa, there's something supernatural about to go on here. Is Elijah coming to deliver him? What about the centurion? Verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
And there is so much significance to this statement. But I want to first ask the question. What made this man say that? Now, if you've like me, if you're like me and you've seen movies about the crucifixion. It gets dark and the ground shakes. And then the centurion says, surely this was the son of God. Which might be his motivation. But notice what the text says. When he saw the way he breathed his last, he said. If you go up a couple of verses. In verse 37. Mark points out that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I think these two things are connected. And all I want to point out is this. Whatever it was, however that Jesus uttered, screamed, shouted, and the way that He breathed His last made this guard, this Gentile, step back and say, surely this was the Son of God. This is speculation, but I don't think it was this centurion's first rodeo. He had watched men die before. He had watched men die on crosses before. But there was something about the way that Jesus breathed His last that made this centurion proclaim, surely this man is the Son of God. That the people around Christ on the cross, as they were seeing and hearing Him, what they heard was hope. Deliverance in the midst of the pain and the agony in his dying. As I've been studying this passage this week, there's there's been a couple of verses that just keep being brought to my mind. You don't have to turn here. You've probably turned enough this morning, but I do want to read this passage in Second Corinthians chapter one. As Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, I want you to. Uh, hear these words. They're familiar. Starting in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. Notice, notice how much affliction was here. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. That Paul... Whatever they were going through, this burden, this affliction in Asia had them wishing that it would be just enough that they would go ahead and die. It was heavy, it was hard, it was agony. Verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in the God, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. Notice that. Do you see it? They put their hope in the God that raises the dead. And in this text, in this instance, He delivered them. But what Paul is communicating is He will deliver us yet, 
And we know from all the writings of Paul, whether by life or by death, we put our hope in the God that raises the dead. He will deliver. So do you see it? Do you see the pattern? In Psalm 22, crying out, putting your trust in the God who is sovereign, who is the ruler, who delivers. I believe this is what Jesus is doing. And then we go to the epistles and we see this same attitude in his followers. Christ's hope was realized. In chapter 16 of this gospel, we see that Jesus is raised from the dead. The women go to the tomb and Jesus is not there. He has been delivered. God delivered him. And we see this same picture in Psalm 22. Look at verse 24 again. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. And then 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. He did it. And for you and I, because of Christ and His work on the cross, that we have a relationship with God and all of the promises that God has granted are ours. The old song, because He lives, we can face tomorrow. No matter what tomorrow brings. But there's more. There's more. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. We see it. We see it in Psalm 22. We see it in Christ on the cross that what God had promised from the beginning to Abraham that through you all the nations will be blessed. And here we have Christ on the cross and as He's breathing His last, as He's crucified, as He's buried, as He raises, He gives us the great commission which is not, oh, go tell just the house of Jacob and Israel. No, the great commission is to go and tell all All the nations are coming in. And we also see this echoed in the very fact that who is the first person in the book of Mark to proclaim, surely this man is the Son of God. Was it a priest? Was it a disciple? Was it a follower? Was it even somebody who was Jewish? No, it was this Gentile centurion. The nations. The nations. And it begins immediately. The nations are being brought in. 
And as we look at this psalm, we see our hope as well. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. All those who die will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Aren't you grateful? Do you see where you place your hope again in the God who makes a way? A God who has delivered. He has delivered us because He sent His Son to die in our place to take on our punishment. And because of that, again, we can trust in these promises that He will never leave you or forsake you. That nothing that you go through can separate you from His love. Isn't it interesting that Paul in 2 Corinthians says, the reason for our suffering is so that you will not rely on yourself, but that you will rely on God. And that is an act of mercy, even though in the midst of pain and suffering, it doesn't feel like that. Because if we go through this world hoping and depending upon ourselves, we will make a shipwreck of our life. But we, we are to look, to look at Christ, to look at the way He suffered, to look at the cross, and to see that our, our way has been made, that we have a guarantee that has been bought, has been paid for, and that as we live in this world, as we are promised that we will suffer, that we will have turmoil, that we will have troubles, that we have an example to follow, that we, in the midst of our pain and our hurt, and our turmoil, and as fallible human beings, when we're tempted to despair, that God calls us to come and to cry to Him. And His Word says that He hears us. And that we can know, and that we can trust, that even in the midst of the suffering, that He is working in and through you. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? It's, it's been said, and I believe that it's true, that it's one of the jobs of a pastor is to prepare his flock to suffer. And as much as I would love to stand up here and say, hey, listen, you follow Jesus and everything's going to be A-OK. You'll never get sick. You won't go through any hardships. Everybody's going to be nice to you. If the world hated me, they're going to hate you also. So brothers and sisters, we need to know how to suffer well. This world is ravaged by sin and the effects of sin. Because of sin and the effects of sin, there are things like wars. There are things like mass shootings at schools. There are things like friendships not lasting because of things that are just unfathomable. 
There's heartache. There's headache. There's soul ache. And we are not left alone. God hears. God hears. Will you trust Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you know my heart and you know how I'm wired. And it is my hope that all that are, that are here or listening online or who are not with us today because they are traveling, that they wouldn't suffer. But God, your plan is better than mine. And you're at work in the midst of suffering, doing things that are for our good and for your glory that sometimes we don't understand. So God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way that your son, in the midst of the worst pain and agony possible, suffering from every single direction, that among the many other things that were going on on that cross, one of the things was that he was showing us how to suffer. We're thankful for Psalm 22. God, let us help us, draw us into your arms so that in the midst of turmoil, we call and cry to you for help. You who hear, you who delivers, in you we place our hope and our trust. And it's all only possible because of what your son did upon the cross and that he was raised from the dead. It's in his name, no other name, in Jesus' name, that we pray and stand firm. 